0: Okay, good morning everyone, Parshas Re'eh, this Shabbos is not just Parshas Re'eh, it's an extremely important and special Shabbos, it's Shabbos Mavarchim Elul, it's the Shabbos that gives a br- bracha to the month of Elul, we start the journey of Elul, not only is Shabbos Mavarchim Elul, but it's also Erev Rosh Chodesh, meaning the day up before Rosh Chodesh, so Sunday and Monday is Rosh Chodesh Elul, so it's a, it's a powerful week. So let me just begin with a some highlights in the Parsha. I'm not going to go through the whole overview. It's a very action-packed Parsha, but there's a number of things that the Jewish people are taught that they need to do when they're coming to the land of Eretz Israel. They need to uh, destroy the altars of idolatry. They need to bring sacrifices, specifically in Yerushalayim. We have some of the laws of Nevoah, of prophecy and prophets. The law of Irhani Dachas, the wayward city, the city that is completely or mostly, a majority, have turned towards idol worship and what has to be done with them. Kashrus repeats itself in this parasha. Tithing, giving the master 10%. shmita, which actually has relevance this year as the year which we're coming to from Rosh Hashanah, is a year of shmita. No doubt we'll talk about that as we get closer to, to Rosh Hashanah. We have the laws of how to send away a Jewish slave, which we'll come back to it later, and also the festivals. Um, the last part of this week's parasha actually is the Torah reading that is traditionally done in all the diaspora shuls, not in Eretz Yisrael, because it's always done in the second day Yontav, the last day Yontav. It's like the last day of Pesach uh, Yatzeret, um, last day last the second day of Shavuot and the last day of Pesach and so on. So that's what we always read because it mentions all the festivals. Now, what I want to do today is two things. I want to first of all Because the Shabbos is Shabbos Mevorachim Elul, but it's a parsha share, but it's the Shabbos Mevorachim Elul. And we've mentioned many, many times the famous Shalom, the Shalom HaKadosh, that says that when we read a Parsha during a special time, inevitably the Parsha is always connected. And since this is the Shabbos that's going to give Baruchah, a blessing to the month of Elul, so what I want to do is I want to just highlight some insights in the Parsha and how they how they connect to the month of Elul. That's that's part one. That's what I want to do in the first part of the Shia. And then the last part of the Shia, I want to go into a particular halacha that's in this week's parasha, which we haven't talked about before, but it's a very interesting halacha. Give you a bit of an analysis, halachic analysis on it, but then actually learn an important lesson from it. So let's go through some of the highlights of, of the parsha to do with the way the B'farshim, the commentaries explain them, and how it connects to the month of Elul. So I'm going to share the screen. Give me one second here. Here we are. Okay. So the first, very, the very first part of the Pasha number one, as you can see over here, uh, says the pasuk, Re'ei anoychi hayoyim. Look, that I am giving, just see, Moshe Rabbeinu the Jewish people, see, that I am giving to you today, blessing and the opposite of blessing. Um, What this is on a simple level, basically, is the Torah introducing the concept of reward and consequences, which is a fundamental belief in in, in Judaism, um, that there are consequences for actions. But also the Torah then describes how when they are coming to the land of Israel, they should take, go to the two mountains of Har-Grizim and Har-Evol and they should um, gather their six tribes on each mountain and then they should read out, proclaim the uh, blessings and proclaim the opposite of blessings and then the, they should sort of enter into another further covenant with Hashem. But the Reb Label Eger, one of the great Hasidic masters, a grandson of Rabbi Akiva Eger, Um says that he directly connects this pasuk to a to the month of Elul because he says R' is always Shabbos muvarhim so the parsha of R' is either always Shabbos Mivarchim Elul or it's Rosh Chodesh Elul, one of the two, right? So he says there's a there's a very specific connection here, and he he uh, describes the connection the following way. He says we know that the Torah was given on Shavuos, right? Moshe Rabbeinu came down 40 40 days later with the gift of the Luchas, the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments were uh, carved out with stone, engraved by Hashem, and it was a divine inscription, and it represented the very, very deep connection between Hashem and the Jewish people um, through the Torah, and that was the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, of course, encapsulate and represent the entire Torah. As we know, in the Ten Commandments, there there are 620 letters, which represent the 613 mitzvahs and the seven rabbinic mitzvahs, and so on and so forth. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down, he sees the Egel Azov, and what he does is, he, he, uh, he, breaks the, he breaks the Luchos. He breaks them, right? Eventually, through a process of tshuva, which included the month of Elul going up to Yom Kippur, um, the end of the journey, starting from the beginning of Elul till Yom, Yom Kippur, was the giving of the second Luchos. Which, you know, the beginning of the, the, giving of the second Luchos was almost like a reenactment of the giving of the Torah. In fact, it was even greater. The only difference is that the, the first luchos were very holy. They came from Hashem himself. They came top down. Whereas the first, the second tablets came, they earned it. It was coming from them. And we know, we, we know that when the second luchos were given, in fact, greater depth and greater analysis of Torah was given with the second uh, tablets with the second luchos. Now we know that this is, this is a big theme of Elul. I mean, obviously during Elul we talk about Shuvah and all that, because that is, Shuvah is about our connection with Hashem, but also there's a deep connection, particularly Yom Kippur, with the concept of Torah. In fact, the Gemara, at the, he doesn't say this, but the Gemara at the end of Tiny says, quotes the Pasuk, um, that the, Yom, uh, the, the Pasuk in Shir Hashirim, which describes Hashem's, day, Hashem's wedding day, and Hashem's day of... Re- re- rejoicing, And he says there in, in, in Tainis that Hashem's wedding day is a reference to the giving of the Torah and the day of Hashem's joyous celebration is talking about the day that the Besam Migdosh was built. But if you look carefully in the context there, when it talks about that the day of Hashem's wedding was the giving of the Torah, it actually is not, not a reference to Shavuos, it's a reference to Yom Kippur. Because there, the Gemara discussing the practices of Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur is essentially as a day of joy because Hashem forgives us and so on. So it's a day of Matan Torah. It's a day of, like the giving of the Torah again. So label, Agar asked the question, and he says, if that's the case, the first time the Torah was given, there was amazing theatrics. There was there was there was thunder. There was lightning. There was a huge scene, a very very emphasized scene. It was a, ma- a most amazing thing, right? But with the second Luchas, there, there's there's nothing. And there are many explanations for that question. which is a very, very quiet thing. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down the mountain you Yom Kippur, gives him the second luchas, tells him to build a mishkan, and everyone's fine. Hashem had forgiven the Jewish people. So he says a very interesting insight. He says no. He says, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu broke the luchas, we know this concept that he broke only the stone, the letters flew away, meaning the luchas were superficially broken, they weren't actually broken. They the concept of the giving of the Torah, the energy of the giving of the Torah disappeared, but didn't 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 go away. It just was removed from their consciousness, from their obvious realization. And Hashem wanted that to reearn the luchas. We had to do tshuva. To reearn the luchas, we had to put in the work. We had to couldn't just wait for Hashem to inspire us from above. But we have to become elevated. We have to reconnect, which is the whole theme of Elo, right? And then the second Luchos came, but he says the second Luchos was not a new Matan Torah. Second Luchos was just bringing back the old Matan Torah, the old giving of the Torah. It was just reappearing. Matan Torah was reappearing. It didn't need the thunder and the lightning and the smoke on the mountain and so on and so forth because that was all there, that was just all of that was now coming back. It wasn't, there wasn't a new experience, it wasn't a new process. And he says, this is hinted in the Pasuk of Re'e. The Pasuk says, Re'e, you need to see, you need to clarify for yourself. You have to understand the specialness of these days. The days of Elul. What are the days of Elul? Onoihi noisein. I am giving. Where do we find the term Anoichi? Aseris Adibra is the Ten Commandments. Anoichi Hashem Olekach. I am Hashem your God. Where do we find the expression of Noisein. That Hashem is giving, in the present tense, giving. We say this every single day. This is part of the formula of the bracha we make on learning Torah. Or a bracha someone makes when they have an aliyah to the Torah. We say, Baruch HaTo Hashem, Noi Sein HaTorah. Hashem gives the Torah. Right? We say this blessing every day, in the morning blessings before we learn. So this is the Torah. So Hashem is asking us, Parashat Shre'eh, he says it's a call. It's a call to every single one of us. Re'eh, have a look. Understand what you're about to embark on. You're about to embark on a month, a 40-day process, a 40-day journey where the Torah is coming back to you. The connection is coming back. The difference is that it's better because you earned it this time. Or you're going to earn it this time. But whatever happened in Matan Torah, we know Matan Torah is the event of Jewish history. It's the ultimate historic event and experience of the Jewish people. It was the wedding between Hashem and As, It was the connection, the Matan Torah, the revelation of God and so on and so forth. That happens again in Elul. I'm giving you today the concept of Onoichi and the concept of Noisein is the idea of Matan Torah. Okay. Another thing to remember just in terms of Elul we know that Elul is a month of change. It's a month where we have to make a difference. And there's always a trap. Excuse me. There's always a trap that... Uh, oh, sorry. There's always a trap that when we come to Elul, what happens is we, we fall into a trap of being in, having an inferiority complex and, and thinking to ourselves, what difference do I make? What difference does the individual make? Right? The world doesn't seem like it's changing in general. What difference do I make? So I just mention that because I saw a beautiful little idea in the uh, brought down in a, in a, in, a, in the Droshus of Rabbi Yosef of Slutsk, and he says the following: He says, "If you look at this pasuk of Re, it's interesting. Re, right, is a command. In grammatically, it's a command. See, have a look, take note, but it's a command given in the singular, not in the plural." So therefore, and, and yet the pasuk right away develops into into plural. Lifnechem means before you plural. So it doesn't say re'e lef for necha. Look, I'm giving in front of you singular. It's not consistent. It starts with re'e. Re'e means singular. It doesn't say re'u. It says re'e, and then it says lifnechem. Right. So it's a bit of an inconsistency. So he says. That This is the point. The person has to know that what we do as an individual, re'e, what you do as singular, affects everyone, affects you, and it makes a massive change. Whatever we do makes a very big difference, not only to ourselves, but to everyone. And that's the idea of the Pasuk, re'e. Look. See. Individually. See. Take note. That what you do is I'm putting this in front of everyone. Because what you do as an individual makes a tremendous difference for, for, for the whole, for everyone excuse me okay let's move on number two I just want to share with you a very interesting little verse from the Ishbitzer from the Me'ashiloyach one of the mitzvahs in this week's pressure is when they come to the Eretz Yisrael they have to destroy the altars the idol the pagan altars right so it says like this: When he touched them, I'll just read the pesukim with you. It's number two here. When he touched them, it's mizbechay seichem. You should tear down the altars, moshematzes You should break the monuments, from and idol worship trees. You should burn of You should cut down the, the 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 I don't know the idol worship structures, vibadatem and erase the name of paganism and amokemahu from that place, meaning from the place of Eretz Yisrael. Says, don't, don't serve God like this. Don't serve God the way they serve God. What should you do? To the place where Hashem will choose from all the tribes, meaning Temple Mount, the place, the special place, the Mishkan, the Besamikdosh, to put his name there, <coughs> to the place where Hashem Will choose to rest his name to reveal his presence. There you need to seek him, and there you need to go. In other words, what Hashem is saying here, when we come to Eretz Yisrael, we need to move towards the base of Amigdosh, the temple. We have to serve Hashem there. There there can be an altar, there there can be karbonis, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, today we don't have the base of Today we um, have davening in place of the base of Megiddosh. So, how do we fulfill this today? What does it mean? I mean, we daven everywhere. We don't only really go to the base of right? So, the Ishvitzer says the following. He says this, this pasuk is hinting to the idea that when we daven, we face the base of right? We face Eretz Yisrael. When you in Eretz Yisrael, you face Yerushalayim. When Yerushalayim, you face the the the, the 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 Temple Mount and so on. Why? Because it all comes in this pasuk. Whenever we daven, we we focus. We focus on Israel, we focus on Yerushalayim, we focus on the place of the Beis HaMikdash. Now the way that's commonly understood, the way that's commonly understood is the recognition, the acknowledgement that when we daven, our Tfilis, our prayers go through Eretz Yisrael, which is true. It goes through the place of the Beis HaMikdash. They ascend to heaven through the place of the Beis HaMikdash, which is why we face there because that's where our prayers go. But the Meash has says a little bit of a different word. He says, it's a lesson in davening in general. And what I want to suggest is that it's a lesson in davening, particularly during the month of Elul and Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. He says, when a person davens, a person has to focus and have kavana and reflect on the of HaMikdosh. That's where your davening needs to face. What does that mean? Because when we davening, davening has the definition. We've talked about this concept before. Davening has the, the, the defin, halachic definition of... Asking for your needs. It's asking for your needs. But when you ask for your needs, why are you asking for your needs? You have to face the Beis Mikdash. We're asking for our needs so we can be a good Jew. We're asking for our needs so we can serve Hashem better. The purpose of the things that we're asking for has to be the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, the place of the Beis Mikdash. It's not just because our prayers go through there. Our kavana has to be there. Our intention has to be there. Which is a concept which is fascinatingly connected to the idea of Elul and Rosh Hashanah because there's that famous idea that we always talk about. That when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, particularly in the preparation lead up to, to, uh, to, to through, through, the, through the month of Elul, we have this almost paradox. Where on the one hand we're completely focused on crowning Hashem as the king. That's the theme of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Crowning Hashem as a king means just like when people crown a king they have to submit, completely surrender and completely give themselves over without thinking about themselves, give themselves over to the authority of the king which is what we try and do on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Yet at the same time Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is filled with personal requests. Our shopping list. We have a long shopping list when it comes Elul Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And how does that work? And in fact the Arizal writes that it's wrong almost. But I mean nevertheless, Sina The Arizal writes that it's like long to wrong to to just keep on asking for yourself the whole time because it's like he gives a very, very sharp expression. He says it like dogs who who scream, Have, have, give, give. Like it's that's like a selfish thing. Yet that what does that mean? Because on the other hand, we know this is, I mean, this is Avinu Vino full of that. The All the requests of Rosh Hashanah is about parasa and health and, and and sustenance and happiness and the whole thing, right? So how does it all go together? And the obvious answer is this that actually we try our best, that when we ask for our personal needs on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippah, that it stems from one of the same thing, it stems from our commitment to Hashem. The surrender to Hashem as Him being the King our Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippah and our commitment to be His faithful subjects throughout the year brings or should bring that together with that, we're asking Hashem to allow us to do His will. We're asking Hashem to allow us to serve Him properly and to do that to give us the means, to give us the tools the health, the sustenance, the things that we need and commitment that we'll use those blessings for a means to serve Him better. So this concept, this thought that the Ishvotzer says on this Pasuk that you should destroy the Mizbeachs, you shouldn't serve Hashem like the pagan worshippers serve Hashem in, in Eretz Yisrael, but you should be focused and go to the of Samigdash is really a formula. Don't serve Hashem in a pagan way. What does in a pagan way mean? Pagan way doesn't mean necessarily just to serve idols. It means that we think about ourselves. We think about something outside of our relationship with, with, with God and Torah, Mitzvahs and so on. But ki'im al you should be focused on the base of Migdosh, Focus on Hashem's presence, Focus on Hashem's service, focuses on the relationship with Hashem and that's why you're davening and that's why you're asking for all these things. A very good foundation for how we build up our shopping list to Art Elul and how we daven to Hashem for the, for, the, for the good year. How do we do that? How do we do that? So Elul is a time, and this is again going to be very much hinted in the Parsha, the month of Elul is a time where we need to become more spiritual. Elul, I mean, we need to obviously engage in spirituality the entire year, but Elul is a time, take it to step back and to think less about ourselves in a way, other than making a, a stocktaking reflection uh, on where we're we, we up to with our relationship with God, but to become, to be a little bit detached from worldliness and materialism and more focused on, on the spiritual. That's what, that's what Elul is. We know that Elul is compared to the city of refuge, just like we have the city of refuge. In fact, one of the acronyms of Elul is the, is the acronym which comes from a verse which describes the city of refuge. So Elul is like a city of refuge. It's an escape. It's a place we run to immerse in as we approach the new year, to be a bit more protected and spiritually infused to be able to prepare for the whole new experience of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and so on. So in this week's Parsha, we have something I mentioned before, but I just want to mention it in a bit of a different way. In this week's Parsha, we have the laws of Kushras. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Um, That's what's coming in the chat. So this week's parsha, we have the we have the uh, we have the concept of kashrus, right? Where well, the Torah again, again, um, tells us what the simonim, the signs of kosher animals are, and we know that the signs of the kosher animals are split hoofs and chewing the cud. And there's that famous halachic analysis from the chover that suggests that the signs of a kosher animal are not just Signs to know which animal is kosher. In other words, one way to approach it is that Hashem says that animals are, there's certain animals that are kosher. It's got nothing to do with the signs. In other words, chewing the cud and split who is not what makes it kosher. It just happens to be a kosher animal. If you want to know which animals happen to be kosher, they all happen to share a certain category. They all happen to share a certain certain property. And that sharing is that that sima, that sign that they all share is the split who's in the chewing of the cud. But he suggests that maybe it's not that way. It's not just that it's a sign to know which animals are kosher, but more than that. It's the signs themselves that create the kashrus. It's the signs that create the kosherness of the animal. right? So what, So how does that work? So spiritually, it's, the, it's this idea. We all have an animal. We all have an animal which we have to refine. We have to focus and, and help serve Hashem. So there's two signs. One is a split hoof, and the other one is chewing the card. Now, The split hoof I've explained many times a bit differently than I'm about to explain it now. So the first thing is that an animal has to have a hoof. What is a hoof? A hoof is something that separates the animal from the ground. Right? In order to be a kosher animal, we need to separate ourselves, stand back a little bit. Not be immersed in the ground. The ground is a symbol for earthliness, materialism. We have to be a little bit elevated, a little bit detached, particularly during the month of Elul. The Mepharshim bring down the month of Elul is to take more time to and take more time to learn, be immersed in things that are more spiritual, but more than the rest of the year, right? So that means de- detaching, detaching from the ground, so to speak. However, at the same time, we know that the hoof has to be completely split, right, all the way up into two parts. What that means is that although the, the animal standing on the hoof is detached, elevated, detached from the ground, Yet there's an opening which exposes the ground. So what's the idea behind that? If the idea is to detach from the ground, shouldn't it be a closed hoof better? And the answer is no. Because when we detach from the ground, it always has a purpose. The purpose is not to escape the ground. The purpose is to influence the ground and elevate the ground. So yes, Elul is a time that we prepare for the new year. Elul is a time that we somewhat elevate ourselves. We stand a bit higher than earthliness and groundliness and materialism. But yet, it's with the purpose that afterwards we take it back into the world. As we live as normal people and we we interact with the world, that we're influencing and inspiring and bringing the holiness, bringing that detachment, that immersion in spirituality, we're bringing it to influence the world as well. That's why the hoof is split, to expose the ground. Because the purpose is to bring it to the ground, so that it should shine into the ground and whatever that ground represents. At the same time, how do we do this? We need to be de- detach a little bit. And We also have to chew the cud. What does chew the cud mean? An animal chews the cud means that it regurgitates and, and, and keeps on chewing. This is a symbol, the commentary is explained as a symbol of reflection. Elul is known as Chodesh HaHeshbon. It's the month of reckoning, it's the month of stock taking. Now, the reason that it's a whole month for this is because it's any, like any businessman would know, any person that, that's involved in anything would know that once in a while you need to take a step back, analyze, you need to review, you need to reflect how things are going. Now, it's an important process to understand, but it's also an important process not to obsess with. In other words, um, some people do this all the time and it's very unhealthy. Right? We shouldn't be every single day spending hours and spending time reflecting and analyzing and making sure that what I'm doing is correct and so on and so forth. Yes, there are times during the year for that. We are told that before we go to sleep, we should do that at the end of the week, maybe for a few minutes. But there is a designated time for this chewing the cud, so to speak. And that is the month of Edel. Ant of Edel is called the Cheshbon. It's a time that we're supposed to look back at the year gone by. We're supposed to review ourselves. We're supposed to discuss with other people. We're supposed to really just take stock of where we're up to in our journey, where we're up to in our relationship with God, where we're up to in our uh, learning of Torah and observance of mitzvahs. And then coming out of that stock taking we make the, some commitments and we make some preparation for the coming year. So this concept of general principle of kashrut which applies to always throughout the year particularly applies during the month of Elul where we're supposed to take a step back and also that's the idea of cheshbon the idea of reckoning and, 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 and stock taking I'll just add one more idea one interesting little idea um, that's also mentioned in this parashah in this parashah of the mitzvah of tzedakah where we know that the Hashem talk about that, that Elul is a time to give extra tzedakah um you know that there's uh, the, there's the famous acronyms of the word Elul. there's five there's many of them, but there's five famous ones, and they three of them represent the three pillars so there's Anila Dodva Dodi my beloved my beloved is to me that's the idea of prayer it's a connection there's inal yadava samlah, which are the cities of refuge, and that represents specifically the idea of torah torah is protective it's also considered like a city of refuge and then there's the one that comes from the Maglah Esther. Which says "ish giving foods each to their friend and gifts for the poor and and the first letters of each one is of each one of those words makes up the word Elul because we are told that Elul is a time to give tzedakah the time to give extra tzedakah. The idea being because tzedakah means when you give someone something that not necessarily you have to give them right not necessarily do they earn an obligation from you to give it to you. It's something you give generously. Obviously, when it comes to the new year, that's what we want Hashem to do for us. We want Him to give it to us, even though it might not be up to scratch, even though maybe we don't quite earn it to the fullest. But Hashem gives us the tzedakah anyway, and that's why one of the ideas we have to add in tzedakah. But I want to just share with you a quick idea that comes from the Pshischa, called Mavasa, from the Pshischa Rebbe. The Pasuk writes like this. The Pasuk says, if a poor man comes to you in law you shall surely give you, give to him And your heart shouldn't feel bad when you give him. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Really, what it should say is you really have to give and don't have a bad heart in other words, don't, don't resist giving, right? So it should say you should give him and don't have a bad heart. And then maybe not give him, right? That's not what it says. So, Shishka says like this He says, tells a story once from the Yida Kodesh, one of the great Hasidic masters. That he came to a, a, a city, and a, a, and a very important city, and um, there was a, 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 a real poor person there. He was a respected person, but it was a person who was tr- stricken with poverty. And he came to me, he asked him for money, and he gave him a very nice sum of money. When he was leaving the city, he gave him another sum of money, also another big sum of money. So the poor man told him, he says, Rabbi, you, I really appreciate it, but you gave me already. He said, yeah, I have to give it again. Why? The first time I gave, I was, just had rachmanis. It actually pained me, which is a good thing, by the way. It pained me to see you like this. So I gave. But I gave it, that was me giving. Now I want to give as a mitzvah. So I'm giving again. This time I'm doing it my conscience is taken care of from last time, but now I want to give it because it's really the right thing to do. In other words, last time I gave, it was, it was a good thing, but it was still me. Last time I want to give because I want to go out of me. I want to go beyond me. So he says, that's the Pshat in this Pasuk. Titayin lo'y. You shall give him. And when you give him, it shouldn't be because Yera your heart is feeling bad. It shouldn't only be because you're upset, that's why you're giving him. Now, it's a good thing to feel that way, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's a good thing because we are and people love rahmanus. It's one of the traits, one of the one of the brand names of being Jewish is to have Rahmanis, to have pity on people who need. So that's that's all good, but it's not the ultimate. The ultimate is to give because we, we not because we need it for ourselves. It, we personally gain from it, but we should give it because it's a mitzvah to give. And that's what the Pasuk is saying, Nasa and you should give. You shouldn't have a bad heart when you give him. Because the ultimate giving is to give selflessly, completely selflessly. Selflessly means not even to, to clear your own conscience. Okay, so that's a bunch of ideas from the parsha, all connected to Elul, and it gives us a bit of a, 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 a head, a bit of a, a heads up, so to speak. A, a what's what's the word I'm looking for? It gives a bit of a pre-warning, so we get in early. You know, when it comes to Elul, always people. The problem with the month of Elul is that people always say it's a whole month. Right, if we were given one day of Elul, this is it. This is the day you got to make preparation. Maybe we take it more seriously, but we 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 given a whole month. So what people do is they leave it. Uh, you know, we have got plenty of time. So we have to say, beat the rush. We shouldn't do that. We should already, before Elul. The Shabbos coming up to the Shabbos that gives a bracha to Elul. Take it seriously. Take these lessons, and Elul becomes a bit of a different month. This year maybe a bit more challenging. It doesn't matter if Hashem put us here. We can do it. And uh, these things to to think about and to think about upgrading a little bit during the month of Elul in order to make proper and meaningful preparation for Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Okay. Now what I want to do is, I want to share with you an idea from the Parsha, an interesting mitzvah from the Parsha, which I'm going to share with you, and I'm going to offer you also the bit of the technical halachic analysis of this. So it's a bit of a... uh, kind of a glimpse of what we, what we used to do in yeshiva for hours on end each day, right? Um, like analyzing Allah, just from a point of view, I'll just share it with you, because so it's, it's interesting and it's just a nice way to have a look at it. I hope I make it clear so you can follow it properly. But then I want to also really go into a whole um, very important lesson. This is based on a talk that the Lubavitcher Rebbe gave on this parasha. So, there's a interest, so let me give you a bit of context. We know that in the Torah, there's a concept of a Jewish slave. Now it doesn't it doesn't come up only here it comes up way back in fact it's the parsha right after parsha Yesro but right after the parsha that deals with the giving of the Torah. we have the parsha that deals with eved ivri and Omer ivri the Jewish slave and the Jewish maidservant now the concept of a slave is because it's like a lease you pay the person money they now are completely given over at your service however the treatment of that person is unbelievable it's, it's it, the gemara even says that if you, if you purchase a slave, you've actually purchased a master more than a slave because there's so many things you have to do to take care of the person. It's not a slave that you can abuse in any way. Chas R'sholem, on the contrary. It's not the slavery the way we understand slavery today. Nevertheless, we still, don't, we still don't have it today, but it's a different type of slavery. It's more like a complete contractual lease on the person and the person's at the master's disposal to do any meaningful work. I'll just give you an example. For example, you're not allowed to, but anything you ask the slave to do has to be meaningful. So... You can't ask the slave to pour you a cup of water if you don't want the cup of water. Just to get get him getting to be busy, you're not allowed to do that, right? That's one of the halachas we learn about. So that's uh, that's a concept. Okay. What is the halacha with the slave? We know that the Eved Ivri, for example, the Jewish slave. There there are separate halachas that govern what we call a Eved Kanani, a non-Jewish slave, a Canaanite slave. But this is what governs the Eved Ivri. The Eved Ivri works for six years, and after the six years, he goes free, right? Um. Then there's, not in this week's prasha, but in prasha's mishpatim, we learn if he doesn't want to go free, then you have to pierce his ear, and then he works for you till the Jubilee year, and then he goes free. Okay. The halacha in this week's prasha, we find an interesting halacha. So you you have a guy that's that's your slave. You paid very good money for it. I don't know, so let's say you pay $60,000, $600,000, whatever the case is, for this person to work for you for six years. And then the time is up, the year comes, the guy goes free. Says the parasha, number five, when you send him free from you, do not send him away empty-handed. There needs, the Torah describes here something we refer to in Hebrew as Ha'anoke. Ha'anoke means to bestow upon him extra. It's like a severance package, an extra, an extra package you have to give the person when they, when they go away says the Pasuk, when he leaves you, don't just say you've paid the wage and that's it, you have to furnish him, you have to give him more, give him from the resources that you have, from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your vat, all the things you have, give some of it away to him, all the blessings that Hashem has blessed you with, you need to give him. Now, the Sefer HaChinuch is a book. There's a book called Sefer HaChinuch. I've quoted many times. The Sefer HaChinuch is a book that, um, in his time, there were many such great sages, like the Rambam and the Ramban and so on, who made it their task to compile a book listing the 613 mitzvahs. It's called the Moynihan Mitzvah. It's not an easy task because, actually, it's very hard to know exactly. If you look at the Torah, we know the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs, but actually, if you look at the Torah, there's more than six hundred thirteen. So obviously, some belong to others, some aren't counted, some are counted, and so that, that, that's why it's a whole It's a whole skill to to know what are the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs. So the Sefer HaChinuch was one of those that set about a very great sage um, to list the six hundred thirteen mitzvahs. The way he does them is he lists them. He gives a few very brief laws about them, and sometimes he also learns a lesson from them. And he gives you, like, you know, where does it apply? When does it apply? Who does it apply to? And so on and so forth. So in this week's parasha, the Sefer HaKinuch brings down this Mitzvah Vahar that severance package, that extra that you have to give the slave, the Jewish slave, when he leaves you after six years. And says the Sefer HaKinuch the following, and this is number five. V'noi heges mitzvah zu, this mitzvah applies b'schorimunakevis, whether it's for males or females, no matter who owns the slave. he says it only applies b'sman habayis, it only applies in the time of the Beis Hamikdosh, in its pure form. Why does it only apply the time of the Beis Amikdash? Because the, this whole structure, the structure and the laws that apply to what we call a Hebrew slave, a Jewish slave, only applies when there was a Beis Migdosh and they had the laws of Yovel. Yovel means the 50 years, the Jubilee year. We don't have that today. Like we've already described this before. Therefore, really, this whole halacha of giving the severance package doesn't apply today because we don't have an evidivary. The context, the, the Pasuk is talking about is the Jewish slave. We don't have a Jewish slave. So therefore, though this is one of the 613 mitzvahs, it's not a mitzvah that applies today. Now, that's all good. However, then he comes with a very interesting line. And he says, however, it does apply today. It doesn't apply to an original form, but it applies. Why? He says like this. Um, beautiful words, he says, av mikol makim nevertheless, af bizman hazeh, even nowadays, lekach, let the wise person listen, and add teaching, extrapolate, expand this mitzvah, what does that mean, how do you expand this mitzvah, we don't have a Jewish slave, expand the mitzvah, very simply, she'im sochar echol mi b'nei that if a Jew rents, hires any, if you hire any other Jew, any other worker, and they worked for you even either a long time or even a short time. And you've got terms of employment. There's a package, there's a, there's, a, there's a salary and so on and so forth, but then the time came to an end. The contract came to an end, the time came to an end. You, you fired the person because you don't need any work anymore or for whatever reason, or even if you weren't happy. Right? There's a mitzvah that you should give him a package, an extra over and above, a package when he leaves you, Hashem from what Hashem has blessed you. You need to pay extra when the person leaves. It needs to go with something extra, not just the wages. Now, of course, in legal law, there's all kinds of things like that. Redundancy pays and severance packages, like that. A similar kind of concept. But this is a mitzvah from the Torah. So, what's the basis of this? Where does the mitzvah lie? The mitzvah lies in the din, in the halacha, in the laws of the Jewish slave. The Seferachiluch says it expands to other things as well. And therefore, he's, according to Sefer HaChinuch, he believes that today we have an obligation every time we, we hire someone to do, to do a job for us, uh, over a period of time, short or long, we have to give them something extra beyond what we, beyond the wages when, we, when, when, when they leave and when they stop working for us. Um, how much you have to give and what you have to give, that's all a big discussion in the Paschim, and there's, and there's all kinds of different suggestions, and it depends on the Minag, the custom of each community, and so on and so forth, but there is this concept to do this. Now, from a Lachic point of view, there's a there's a there's a commentary on on the Sefer Chinuch, and who normally the Sefer HaKinuch is one is a writer that normally follows the view of the Rambam. And the, the Minchas Chinuch, the explanation on Sefer Chinuch, says that this premise that the Sefer Chinuch does by by expanding the law of severance package for the slave into severance package for any worker. He says he's not sure if the Rambam actually holds like that. And for the following reason, now you have to follow it a little bit, because it's a bit complicated. So let me give you a bit of background. When we talk about a Jewish slave, there's, there's two kinds of Jewish slaves. As we call, Moicher Atzmoy, it's the slave that sold himself. Ozmachruh Bezdin is the slave that was sold by Beistin. What does that mean? Again, this is all in the times of the Beis HaMikdosh. The person who sold himself is a person who's doing it tough, doesn't have money to feed his family, doesn't know what to do, so he goes and sells himself to a slave, uh, as a slave to a master. Yes, he's going to be treated well, all that, all good, but it's not actually the ideal thing, and the Torah is not so happy with him. The reason is because a person only has one master, and that's Hashem. Although we work for people, but to give ourselves over to a a person in in, in the structure of a servant-master relationship, that's not such an encouraged thing. It works, but it's not such an encouraged team because we are Hashem slaves and no one, no one else's. Okay. But that's the person who does it. Then there's a situation where the base team sells a person. And this is the typical classic case is where a person, where a person um, stole. And of course the mitzvah when you steal is to return the last article or to return the value of the last article. This is a person that's really used it. It's gone away. It doesn't have the money. He has no money to return what he stole. And therefore, he gets sold as a slave, based in, can sell him as a slave in order to pay for the thing that he stole. Okay. In the Gemara, in the Talmud, there's a big machlaik, it's a big dispute. And it's all about how you analyze the verses and the psukim and so on and so forth. But there's a big dispute if the severance package that is talked about in our parasha. Does that apply to both slaves, both the one that sold himself and the one that based in sold him? Or perhaps it only applies to the one that based in sold him. But the one who sold himself doesn't get that severance package. Now, one suggestion, and, and there's a, two, opi- two opinions in the Gemara about this, all about how you interpret the psukim. Of course, now's not the time to go into that at length. But a suggestion has been made by the Minchas Chinuch that this will depend, if either view will depend, if in fact this law can expand to other workers. So he says the following. If the Torah says that whatever kind of slave you have, whether it's someone who sold himself or someone that was sold by a in needs to get a severance package, then it makes sense that it's maybe not even unique to slaves. It's actually something that both slaves have to get. And maybe by extrapolation, it can be other workers as well. But if you see that, if you learn the Torah, if you interpret the Torah, that the severance package mitzvah, right? The severance package mitzvah is specific to the slave that was sold by Beistin. It doesn't even expand to the other slave who sold himself. Then maybe it doesn't expand to anything else either. Maybe it's just unique to a slave that was sold by the Beistin who needs to get a severance package. And that's the way he concludes and he says if you look in the Rambam, therefore, the Rambam, when he talks about... I'm just going to do one line of the Rambam. I'm going to just show you in a second. I'm going to highlight it. You see? Right? The Rambam says, Moicher Atsway, a slave that sold himself, Ein he does not get the severance package. Mocheru, based in based in sells it does. In other words, the Rambam follows that view in the Talmud halachically that this mitzvah of severance package only applies to one type of slave. And therefore it's not so simple that halachically it can be expanded to other people, other workers. Which is interesting because the chinuch who normally follows the Rambam says it does, it applies to all workers. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe, as I said, has a talk on this. I hope that was clear. I'm hard to tell because it's by Zoom. I'm going to stop sharing actually. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe has a, a talk on this. He says the following. He says no. It could very much apply to everything, all workers, even if we say that the one who sold himself doesn't get it. Why? Because let's go back now and understand. <laughs> good question. Wouldn't that wouldn't that encourage people to to steal? No, it's not. I guess not, because it's not. Even though it's it's a very good working relationship, but it's not a very nice thing to be sold as a slave. And hopefully that uh, being sold in slave itself would incentivize people not to steal. I'll, I hope, I can imagine. But, but he explains the following. Let's go back to this essential concept of why a person needs a severance package. There's two ways to explain it. One way to explain it is, that the Torah says, you know, when, you, when someone works, you've got to pay them, right? It's part of obligation. It's a normal thing. Ethical thing when someone works, you pay them a salary. Comes along the Torah and gives us what's called a chidush. A chidush means a new idea, a novel idea. That part of the package, part of the part of the structure, part of the pay structure, part of the salary structure, has to include a, a package at the end. Now that's a very novel idea. I mean, why if I if I hire you for to work for me per hour and per month, whatever the case is, and I pay you twenty five dollars, thirty dollars, fifty dollars an hour, whatever the case is. Why should a salary structure include that at the end of the three months that the contract ends, I have to, above the salary that was the value of your work, I have to give you another package. Why? Okay, but the Torah says that. Now we have a principle that whenever the Torah gives a novel idea, a novel idea can never be expanded to other stuff. A novel idea is unique to the circumstance. In other words, if the Torah says, you know, I'm going to tell you something you wouldn't have thought of yourself, and it's really logical, but this is what I want you to do. It's a chidush, it's something novel. Novel things stay with a novel idea and then don't get extrapolated to other things. Because I don't know if it applies to other things. So, if if giving a severance package is a novel idea, it's like a, a, a part of the salary structure, which is an absurd concept, and the Torah says it only applies to the, to the, to the slave that was sold by Bestin and not the slave that sold themselves, well then it, that's where it's got to stick. It doesn't apply to anything else, and it doesn't get expanded to any other worker either. However, there's a whole different way to look at it. The way to look at it is no. that it's not part of a salary structure, it's part of human decency. It's, it's, like, in the, it's, in the, it's like in the context of tzedakah, of generosity, that Torah talks about this pressure, but not, but not tzedakah in the sense of charity, it's, a, it's just human decency and human generosity. That if someone works for you for a period of time, you give them a severance package. You show appreciation. He, came to, he or she came to work for you. Hopefully they facilitated some of your blessings. They helped you receive some of the blessings that Hashem gave you. Show appreciation. When they go away, don't leave them empty-handed. Give them something to carry them a little bit. Give them an extra package. So it's, it's actually really a mitzvah, which is part of the ethics and morality of decent, generous living. If that's the case, of course you can extrapolate it. Ah, you're going to tell me so? Then why didn't the why didn't the slave who sold himself be subject to the same bonus? So we, that the answer is that's the novel idea, <laughs> that's the chiddush, and one of the reasons for that is the Maharshal, the Yamshul Shlomo says that the reason that the that the that the one who sold himself doesn't. Doesn't get the severance package because it's a punishment. You sold yourself voluntarily. You chose to become a slave to someone else, which Hashem doesn't like, because you should be a slave to Hashem exclusively. You chose, you chose to bring upon yourself a new master, and therefore you don't get. You can get your wages, but you can't get the severance package. But other than that, everyone else does. In other words, it's, a, it's a, not a part of salary structure. It's not a novel idea at all. It's part of ethical and generous living. To give more than they just than they just earned. To give that package at the end, and therefore since it's part of tzedakah, it's part of a general, normal, logical way of living. That's why the Sefer HaChinuch, of course, follows the Rambam, but he actually says, listen, it's normal living, it's generous living, it's ethical living, therefore you should expand it. He says, what was his his expression? He says, Yosef, such a beautiful phrase. Let me one second again. He says, He says, Yishma chacham, let the wise listen and add, add, add teaching and ex- expand it and extrapolate it to others as well and therefore it's a normal thing that any it, expand, it, it applies therefore to all workers which in fact is the halacha there's a halachic obligation to do this exactly how it's done and how much and so on is, 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 is all part of discussion that uh, great halachic authorities talk about and discuss Okay. so in that talk he ends with a very interesting idea he says, this actually is a lesson. It's not just a lesson in how to treat a worker. But it's actually a lesson in, in lots of different relationships. Particularly, he focuses on the relationship of leadership and teaching. Which again, as we said many times, leadership and teaching is not only something that's done formally. It's only done by people who have a large following. But every person is a teacher. We teach children, we teach friends. Every person has a circle of influence. And every person has a position to be able to give. So the analogy he gives is Rav and Talmud, a teacher and a student. So a teacher teaches a student, right? The student has a certain level of ability that allows that student to understand, let's say, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the teachings at a certain level. Now, Because they've entered into a contractual relationship, the teacher's committed to be the teacher, the student's committed to be the students. Um, The teacher has to teach the child to the best of their ability. Sometimes that requires effort, it requires work. So the the teacher has to find ways and methodologies and, 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 and sort of strategies to remove the blockages that stand in the way of the student's understanding and to ensure, whatever it takes, that the student could... Understand whatever the student is capable of understanding. Okay, that's 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 fine. That's an obligation. That, that we know you have to do. If the teacher didn't do that, then the teacher is negligent. That's that's clear. The teacher has not fulfilled their is, The a teacher's irresponsible. A teacher's responsibility is to is to Teach every child to the best of their ability and to ensure that whatever the ability of the child is to understand the material, that they're able to do that. Even if there are things that stand in the way, a teacher has to overcome them, differentiate, individualize, like the story of the Gemara where I prayed and taught a student 400 times until he finally understood the material, whatever the case is, but that's a basic obligation of a teacher. However, explains that's like the wages. That's what you have to give. That's part of the the, the obligatory giving. But then the Torah says there's a mitzvah of ha You have to give a package that will last beyond the time of the relationship. The way he explains it in the teacher-student relationship is like this. And a successful teacher, let's say, who removes all impediments to learning and teaches the child... To understand the material and be successful and really absorb all the material. But the teacher himself or herself is able to understand much more than that. Which he's not she he or she is not obliged to give over at this point because it's not in the realm, it's not in the reality of the student. The student's not capable. Right? What the teacher stu- what the teacher obliged to do is to take what is applicable to the, to, to the student and, and, and feed it to them and give it to them in the best possible way. Comes along the Torah and says, if you spent a year or two or three with that student and you were a very successful student, uh, a very successful teacher, and you gave to that student everything you were obliged to give, but not more, there's a mitzvah you haven't fulfilled. It's great, you've been successful, but there's a mitzvah you haven't fulfilled. Because what you have to give the student is the ability to go beyond the time of the relationship. The ability to have a package that will stand in that student's step beyond the relationship, the skills, the tools, that the student can now take away and use and invest in his or her, her own learning that will, that will facilitate and, 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 and make it possible for that student eventually to discover that which the teacher is capable of doing. That's what he calls spiritual ha'anoka, spiritual severance package, where whenever you have a relationship of influence or leadership or teaching with anyone, that you don't only give them what they're capable of getting, which is also a good level. You don't only invest the effort to give them what they're capable of getting at that point of time, which is the obligation part of the relationship, but in the spirit of ethical generosity, you do much more for them. You feed them with tools, you give them the capability, you give them something that's not only during the relationship, the salaries during the relationship, but you give them something which is much which they're capable of doing and capable of taking with them beyond the relationship. You give it from the things that Hashem has blessed you with. That's the, that's the expression of the Pasa. Give them from your threshing field, from your fields, from your sheep, from your flock. Give them something that's in your world that they can take with them and eventually, through their work of their own, reach the world that you were able to reach as well. And he ends up by saying that Hashem has that same relationship with us. That we know that when Mashiach will come And Hashem will give us the ultimate reward about which He speaks about at the beginning of this parsha. It won't only be the reward that was the reward of our world, but what's written in many places is that what Hashem will reveal to us, when Mashiach comes, He'll reveal us His infinite presence. He'll reveal to us what He got out of our mitzvah, so to speak. He'll reveal to us the revelation that He got something that is infinite and beyond our world. And He'll expose us to His world, not just to our world, and give us that extra bit of reward as well, when, when, when we complete the journey, when we complete the whole six millennia, like the slave completes the six, the six years of working, when we complete our six years of working, which is leading up to Mashiach, the reward will not only be the, to reward us, what we relate to, what the reward in our world, but it will be a, a, a package that is much beyond our world and it will be a glimpse into Hashem's world. How do we do this? By fulfilling this mitzvah of Ha'anokeh, that we have a rela- physical or spiritual, Then we have a relationship with someone that that we, we, we are obliged to invest because of our commitment but we give them much more than that that when they finish with us we give them from our world to take with themselves that they can access our world with time and be able to enter and to be successful in what is our world not only is their world which is much more beyond and way more beyond what they were able to reach as the, during the time that we had the relationship with them. Okay, that's the, uh, that's the thought for the day and I uh, wish everyone a great day and a good week.